Today was act or yesterday was actually a pretty big day in sports in Cleveland. It was the first day of training camp for the Browns in a season that everyone has the highest expectations for. Our Browns coverage team is plowing the content out. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jen Cahoon. It's already Thursday. <laughs> is it i know i felt like it was it's god this is the longest week ever yeah it, it, it does seem like a long week of course i was off last week so it was guaranteed my week would seem long and it has been let's begin why might ohio congressman jim jordan be subpoenaed to testify before a committee of his colleagues investigating the invasion of the u.s capitol by donald trump supporters jen cahoon jim jordan is always an interesting character he's kind of the bane of the democrats in ohio but but he could be forced to testify which would be mighty uncomfortable i would suspect i would suspect but you know i mean it's Jim Jordan, okay? So he's he's going to be his usual pugilistic self about this. But uh, the thing is, according to at least one member of this committee investigating the riot, his fellow Republican, by the way, Liz Cheney, Jordan could very well be called as a material witness. And the chances of that uh, seem to increase after after Jordan in a, in a Fox News interview the other day acknowledged that he talked to Trump on the day of the riot, although he he wouldn't reveal the substance of the conversation or exactly what happened. And he at first dodged the question, you know, saying he had, oh, I've talked to Trump countless times before uh, Brett Bayer, you know, finally pinned him down that, that he had actually talked to him that day. Um, so he could be helpful giving insight into Trump's mindset that day. Although, as I said, I don't expect him to be you know, willing or cooperative at all in, in this, um, you know, to help this committee, which is controlled by Democrats and he thinks is a big sham. Um, you know, just to remind people, Jordan was actually chosen to serve on this committee by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected that. Um, she rejected him and another member, uh, Representative Jim Banks of Indiana, because she said, you know, she wanted to preserve the credibility of the committee. But Jordan, you know, he accuses Pelosi of, you know, not naming him because she wants to avoid the tough questions that he would ask. For instance, pushing this false narrative that, you know, Pelosi was the one responsible for the riot. Uh, there have been a number of fact checks, you know, debunking that saying, you know, she's yeah, not. That's just a, that's it, preposterous nonsense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what's been surprising but, throughout this is the way the Republicans are trying to pretend January 6th didn't happen when we all saw yeah. it. And oh, think, we didn't watch those officers testify. No, we didn't have time to. But to the testimony either. of those officers was haunting. I mean, that really drove it home. And they're furious with the Republicans for for basically saying the suffering you went through isn't real. It didn't happen. And they, they said so. I don't know that that even if I loved your use of the word pugilistic, but I'm not sure that's going to play on that stage. If he if he sits and is combative saying it didn't happen, it didn't happen while the images and things are available. And after the officers talked about what happened, it, that's not a good place for him to be. This could be very uncomfortable for him, I would suspect. I guess he could also fight it. You know, they the uh, Democrats have had a lot of trouble with, you know, trying to get people to appear for com before committees. It gets tied up in court. So, 
you know, who knows what, what could happen in that regard. But um, one other thing that I think it's important to remember here is that before Trump's supporters stormed the Capitol and do, you know, did all that damage and hurt all those people, Jordan was there leading a group of Republican Congress members who were objecting to counting Arizona's electoral votes. And he wanted to object to counting the electoral votes in, in six states that the Trump campaign you know, had disputed, even though courts throughout the country had rejected the legal arguments as the challenges as baseless. Um, but then after the riot interrupted this, um, you know, accounting of the votes, uh, Jordan, you know, posted a statement on Twitter saying, oh, stop the violence, support the Capitol Police. But then when they resumed, he went back in there and, um, you know, basically voted against accepting the electoral votes yeah i mean he's he's a shameless purveyor of false and he did not hold trump accountable at all for for the riot yeah no he's he's it i mean look lots of people are embarrassed in ohio that he represents part of ohio because he just tells complete falsehoods The, the idea that the election was a sham is is one of those but it'll be interesting to see if he's called you're listening to this week in the cle So what was the secret sauce for getting unemployment complaints solved without waiting for the unemployment office to answer those complaints? Jane Cahoon, Jeremy Pelzer found out (laughs) there was a way to get past the bureaucracy. What was it? Yeah, this is so interesting. You know, we've all heard these nightmare stories of people who were thrown out of work during the coronavirus pandemic, who were angry and frustrated by all these lengthy delays and problems getting their unemployment benefits or even getting through to this overwhelmed unemployment system we have here in Ohio. But a lot of them have found another way to get these issues resolved, and that's going to their state lawmakers. Um, As you said, Jeremy told the story of some people who who went that route after getting nowhere with the unemployment office and, you know, practically being at the end of their rope. And and the lawmakers were able to intervene and, and, and help them get their issues resolved. Now, this has been going on for more than a year with with state senators and representatives and mostly their office staff, you know, notifying the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services about constituents issues with unemployment benefits and and pushing them to to fix the problem of course the unemployment office insists that they they try to solve everyone's problems and give everyone's issues the same urgency and attention so <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, right. they dispute that i just need to say this they dispute that this is a faster way to solve your problems or that the the lawmaker requests are somehow fast tracked they say if somebody's turned to their lawmaker that's pretty good indication that that person's case has likely already been working its way through the system. <laughs> so, wow, you're laughing, a, you're laughing. What but, a ball uh, of hooey. You know, the, the thing is, they have zero credibility because of how, how terrible they were dealing with this. I, I do think it, it's fascinating that they didn't want us to run this story because they thought <laughs> it would lead to lots where people go into their legislators. It's like, yeah, too bad. If that's the way to get through, go to your legislator. How many people did they set aside just to deal with legislative complaints? It was like 30 something? About 25. Let me make clear. They didn't outright ask us not to run the story, but they clearly were, they clearly had reservations that, you know, we weren't, yeah, we, boo-hoo, you know, boo-hoo. we were going to We're going to help people. Go to your um, legislator if you have this problem. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they do have as many as 25 staffers who, among other things, handle these claims that get referred from state lawmakers, although that number does flex, fluctuate based on, on the workflow. Um, so, you know, 
um, yeah, they the the lawmakers that Jeremy talked to said their staff staffs have spent tons of time dealing with these problems over the past year. Like Representative Jeff Crossman of Parma, a Democrat, he said uh, at one point a few months ago, seventy five percent of his office's time was spent trying to resolve unemployment issues, although that's eased up some now. But he said, my office has basically become a customer service department for ODJFS. Um, and then a Republican uh, representative, Ron Ferguson from Jefferson County, said about 40% of the inquiries his office has uh, received from constituents have been about unresolved unemployment claims. And he said, I wish our constituents would reach out because it, it definitely pushes the process along. He said he, <laughs> ho he hopes that Ohioans who have problems, you know, don't hesitate to contact their lawmakers, even if they're from a different political party. He said this, these kinds of things aren't political. You know, we're just doing our jobs here. All right. So as a public service, because that's what we're about at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, we should put together the list of the phone numbers for all the legislators of our area with a story that says, hey, if you're having unemployment problems, call these guys. Laura Johnson, let's get moving on that. Uh, all right. <laughs> we want to help people and calling the unemployment office has caused nothing but headaches. Uh, it'll I mean, be interesting. Some people really like the, ho the hold music. Like, <laughs> they said they've gotten the wait time down to about 10 minutes. In, in fairness, they, they also, you know, have put a lot into to, uh, improving the situation. Forget it, man. If I'm having a problem, I'm going to the legislator. Way to go, Jeremy <laughs> Pelzer. You found the secret method for clearing up the complaints. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson took the rare step of testifying in his own defense in his federal criminal trial yesterday. The evidence against him is overwhelming, Layla Tassi. What did he say? Yeah. Can you believe he admitted the whole thing? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Johnson, of course insisted that his expense reports are accurate. This is all just, you know, a whole lot, lot to do about nothing. His, his longtime ally, Robert Fitzpatrick, of course, last week told a federal jury that he signed falsified timesheets for work he never did for years while Johnson pocketed the money, which was like $127,000, and then claimed it on his taxes as job-related deductions. Johnson, when he took the stand, refuted that and says he was paying Fitzpatrick to tend to yards and maintain abandoned lots in the ward. He said he was so hurt that Fitzpatrick, who he had known since he was a boy and helped raise, would level such false accusations against him. And Johnson went on to talk about how he poured his own money into his ward and into renovations at the recreation center throughout his 40 years in office. And he painted himself as kind of the guardian of the vulnerable, the elderly, and the youth who would otherwise have fallen prey to the streets. As for the money, well, yeah, go ahead. Brian. Let me ask you this, though, because the, the evidence throughout his trial shows <laughs> completely the opposite. The money pouring into his account, nothing to show he was paying these people. Well, yeah. What, what did he say about the lack of, you know, the documentation of the crime is overwhelming. Well, it's because Why he his wiggle room here is that he keeps saying that a lot of these transactions were in cash and not documented because of that. You know, he said it, it, the money ended up in his bank account because Fitzpat Fitzpatrick wanted to be paid in cash. So he would reimburse him in that way. And he didn't have documentation of any of the charitable charitable gifts he claims he made and reported on his taxes because, you know, hey, man, he's too busy legislating. 
And yeah, you know, the, the, the most t- telling part of this trial for me was a line at the bottom of John Caniglia's story a couple of days ago is the ju- as as they were getting ready to, for the defense. The judge said, hey, 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 I don't want a lot of character witnesses. Good deeds are not going to get you out of this one. I mean, <laughs> the, the judge was basically saying this case is overwhelming, man. You better have some evidence to prove it false because. This looks bad. We don't want to hear about what a great guy you've been to some of the right. people in your neighborhood. So I, it, it's, I mean, I was surprised he took the stand because the, the case is overwhelming and, and it sets him up to be questioned by prosecutors. But he really had nothing to offer that refuted what has been presented That's except right. to say, you know, look over there. Don't look, don't look, at the right. other, look over you, here. You know, as for the, those federal funds that the prosecutors say he steered to three of his adopted kids through jobs at the community development corporation, Johnson says that he specifically asked that they not be paid with federal funds. But since the federal dollars are commingled with other sources of money, there was no way to parse that out. He says, um, you know, <laughs> our, our favorite deduction, uh, you know, his uh, remember the cars we were talking about, how he uh, his favorite our favorite scam that he is accused of committing, inflating the value of his two 1975 beaters that he donated to Our Lady of the Wayside. He estimated the values of those cars at forty three thousand and thirty six thousand apiece. The charity sold them each for less than three thousand dollars. So that should tell you a little bit about the condition of these these vehicles. He starts quarreling with the prosecutor. <laughs> While he's on the stand, he's calling the vehicles vintage and in mint condition. <laughs> you know, I, I've really been surprised because of the evidence being so strong that he hasn't taken a deal. And the fact that he took the stand, I think, is evidence of of why why he didn't take the deal. I, he spent 40 years in city council. He's been on the hot seat before. There was a period where he wasn't showing up for any meetings and they were getting ready to oust him. And he talked his way out of that. I think he's had a lifetime of talking his way out of trouble and just presumes he can do it, but not with federal charges. Is you, you can't you can't just say, "Hey, look at the bright shiny over there," and hope people will look away. I think he's he's looking at some very serious prison time once mm-hmm. uh, this case is over. We'll see. This will wrap up quickly. I'm, I would not be surprised at all to see a verdict this afternoon or tomorrow morning. So we'll be talking about it again. Right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson get a recycling program going before he leaves the mayor's office at year's end? Laura Johnston, I, I thought the last set of stories about this made clear that would not happen. But suddenly, I guess under pressure, they're trying to do so. Yeah, it's all going to be opt in, though. So nobody's going to be forced to recycle. The deadline to sign up is October 22nd. But the hope is that having 30 days of signups will help draw potential vendors because they still don't have a vendor for this. Cleveland's been without recycling since April 2020 with when a contract expired. Since then, all recyclable materials have been shipped to the landfills. They've twice sought a new vendor, but the problem is that there was no vendors bidding on the first contract. The second time they had one bid that was going to cost about $6 million a year. And, you know, this, that's a, that's a, big chunk of money. So they got some recommendations in February on how to revamp the program and boost efficiencies from a consultant called GT Environmental. Part of the problem is that Clevelanders aren't super great at separating out what's recyclable or not. I mean, in in their defense, neither is my husband or a lot of people that I know because it's not clear. And I feel like it's changed a lot since, you know, the re- 
reuse, reduce, recycle stuff came about. But um, yeah, I'm I'm glad they're trying. Is the is the thought that if you opt in, you're going to be more inspired to do the separation correctly? That that it shows your interest and that that will appeal to a recycler then that they have a, a cohort of people who are committed to doing it correctly. Right, exactly. That if you're choosing to do this, then you're committed to doing it right. I mean, that's the idea. I love this. As a condition for joining the new program, residents have to pledge to follow curbside recycling guidelines. And failure to follow the rules means you could lose your right to a recycling bin. <laughs> can, can I jump in here? Layla Tazi. I, so once ago on this podcast, I had made the case that even if recycling doesn't bring money into the city, even if it if the city has to pay for it, that it's a city service that people expect and that Cleveland should find a way to do it. But the situation <laughs> has me wondering about suburban recycling programs, because first of all, Laura, like you just pointed out, you know, the suburbs aren't better at sorting the trash than, I mean, we still throw the peanut butter jar in there sometimes half washed out. I mean, that's going to end up in the landfill. But but if Cleveland is saying it's too expensive and they can't find a company to take the contract which co- which companies are the suburbs using? Why are the suburbs not having the same problems? And and how much are suburbs paying for recycling? But beyond that, and we've talked about this before too, I've read so many stories exposing recycling as pretty much a scam propagated by the plastics industry. They created this notion of recycling that, you know, and paid for the marketing that made us all feel like we're saving the planet by doing it. But the end game for them is that it absolves our conscience when we buy newly manufactured plastic products and right. we feel, feel like it's okay to consume plastic as long as we put it in the recycling bin, bin afterward. But the truth is, in many, if not most cases, our recyclables are not actually getting recycled. And Cleveland is kind of, that's playing out in, like, we're actually seeing the reality of that. <laughs> and right. Market, we're actually having the to for recyc- your reality. Yeah. I mean, right. the market for recyclables is so terrible that most of the stuff we're trying to recycle ends up, you know, it, according to these exposés, in landfills. So, Chris, and I we're think- contaminating I the do, entire I, batch. I do wonder if what we're seeing here is that Cleveland is actually being the more honest. You know, Jane and I live right. in Cleveland Heights where they're about to any day now, completely overhaul the way they collect trash and recyclables. We've always just put bags out, certain color bags for recyclables, bags for trash. And they're moving to those big, gigantic bins that I guess most people have and the trucks come and get. But they're giving out recycling bins for cardboard bottles and cans. And it just strikes me that that for exactly what you just said, how are they managing to do that? They got grants and all sorts of things to do this. How are they managing to do it if Cleveland can't? Right. Or is it a sham that this is not being recycled? Right. It's just to make all our, us greenies in Cleveland Heights feel like we're doing the right thing. Right. I feel like this is more than simply, you know, why can't Cleveland learn to separate its trash? Why can't they find a vendor to take the contract? I think we need to ask ourselves whether we're all buying into an illusion, whether the suburbs are just feeding us this, you know, this lie about recycling. I think we need to follow the trash and find out where our recyclables are actually ending up. Isn't that a well, great idea? We have a uh, environmental reporter who named Pete Kraus, whose ears yes. are tingling. That's right. We're going to make him follow the like the trucks around and just like see where they go. Yeah, do, put like a GPS tracker video. in some in some uh, recycling bin. <laughs> the new Apple tags. I thought it was always following the money. Now it's following follow the trash. The trash. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many counties in Ohio have coronavirus infection rates high enough to meet the CDC's new guidelines for mask wearing? 
Jankoon, there's a whole bunch of them, but fortunately, they're not near us. Yeah, that number would be 23 out of our 88 counties. Um, and as you said, the CDC has come out with this guidance and said that, you know, in light of this rapidly spreading Delta variant of the virus, even vaccinated people should wear masks indoors if they are in areas where the rates of cases and positive tests are high. So, uh, you know, they're supposed to wear a mask if they live in areas with new infection rates of 50 or more per 100,000 residents or positive coronavirus test results of over 8% over a seven-day period. So uh, the um, most of these counties that fall under this, as you said, most of them are rural with the exception of uh, the Dayton and Youngstown areas and Butler County in suburban Cincinnati. So uh, 19 Ohio counties exceeded that threshold of the 50 cases per 100,000. This is between Monday, July 19th and, and last Saturday. And um, four counties exceeded the positive test rate. And um, by the way, the, the daily new case count in Ohio just keeps going up. On, on Wednesday, we had 1,456 new cases, which is another high for this summer. Uh, the previous summer high was on Tuesday when there were 1,317 cases. So, you know, daily cases were hovering around 200 in, in early July, but that's before the, this Delta variant became more dominant. Um, another aside here, Governor Mike DeWine said this week there really isn't an appetite for another mask mandate here in Ohio, so he doesn't intend to impose one, although his administration is looking at the CDC guidance. They're, they want to focus more on getting people vaccinated. Um, and so on that note, we're still waiting for him to come up with his next, you know, uh, the the uh, next iteration maybe of the Vaximillion lottery or whatever incentive he's, he's going to come up with. Um, although he did say yesterday that state workers who, who get the shot can get a $100 incentive. So the, the, the weirdness about this mask mandate is it's being issued in places where the people who are causing the spread of the virus live. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're, you're seeing the worst it's not outbreaks. It's a mandate. It's just guidance. Well, okay. but guidance. But you're seeing the worst outbreaks in places where people aren't getting the shots and largely you're anti-mask. So what's the point of giving them guidance they should wear masks when they're kind of causing the problem that is surrounding them anyway? Is there any point to issuing mass guidance to people who are having the self-destructive behavior of not getting the coronavirus vaccine. Well, I mean, they're also telling the people who did get vaccinated, even if they're in the minority, that 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 they should be doing it. So, you know, they 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 will probably do it if they, you know, got the shot and wore a mask. Before. I don't know. A lot of vaccinated people are pushing back on that, saying, why should I have to do that? Because, you know, when I'm right. vaccinated, I don't know. Right. I uh I, this this whole thing is is very bizarre. Yeah. Um, again, we worry about the children yep. too. Who I was not say. old enough? Yeah. I, yeah. I knew you moms would jump in there. Oh, <laughs> All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are the potential sites for a Cuyahoga County Diversion Center for treating people with addiction and mental health problems instead of throwing them in jail? Leila Tassi, we have a temporary one of these going, but the goal is to build a a very nice one that will take care of lots more people. And we finally know where that might be. 
Right. So Public Works Director Michael Dever briefed county council on this yesterday. The three sites that are under consideration are the old juvenile court complex on East 22nd Street in Cleveland, the Metzenbaum Center on Community College Avenue in Cleveland, and then a recently vacated Board of Developmental Disabilities property on Euclid Avenue, which is in East Cleveland. The county hired Prospectus Architecture last month to evaluate these sites and help make the final selection. They're all county-owned facilities, so acquiring them isn't an issue, but each building comes with its own cost in rehabilitation. The worst of them is the old juvenile court complex. The council committee approved yesterday a $5.3 million contract to rid that old complex of hazardous material and debris, add temporary electrical wiring and protect against future break-ins and vandalism. And that contract, I mean, that won't come up for a final vote of council until September. But so in the meantime, some council members are concerned that paying that high cost up front before any decision has been made about these three options would preordain that building as the county's choice. But the counterpoint to that is that the work has to be done anyway on this building, even if it were being demolished you'd need to remove the asbestos and all of these hazardous materials. That's built. That building has been in really rough shape, too. It's been vacant well, since 2011. Yeah, but am I the only one in this podcast that's been in that building? No, I've, I've been, been in it. Mm-hmm. You've been in it? I mean, that, that's a beautiful building. I mean, it, and, and some of the old courtrooms are truly historic. Actually, one of them was <laughs> featured in the old Cleveland Indians movie, The Kid from Cleveland. It was all filmed in there. And that's a building that's worth preserving. It has historical significance. So I thought it was really know, depressing inside. It's really well, it was really but, dark. But you can fix that. But it but it does have some, you know, look, we got historic tax credits for that big mirror box downtown. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, the, the, the juvenile court. We had the second juvenile court in the entire country one year after Chicago. Uh, that right. building is is something that's probably worth preserving. Everybody sees it when they drive down the uh, the, the shoreway. In the, the last, Interstate 90. The, the last decade, though, there's been a lot of damage done to that building. There was some massive flooding that did tons of damage. And then someone broke in and set a fire there. Mm-hmm. And they've tried to sell it multiple times, but no one wants it. The, you know, so the final recommendation of this is expected no sooner than, you know, mid-September, I think. Interestingly, council will have to decide upon whether to abate those hazardous materials at that juvenile center before then. They can't really kick that can down the road forever. So... Um, so currently, as you said, the permanent, uh, um, the, the temporary diversion center is, is at East 55th street. Um, there's a building there owned by the this Oriana is, house. I was just going to say, this is Laura Johnston. I would say parking would be one of the biggest issues. And I don't mm, think there's great parking at that old juvenile court building. Good yeah, there was, there's was a there? lot across the street. Yeah. There's okay. A, there was a pay lot across the street that pe- some people use for the Indians. The Metzenbaum center is another interesting choice that's been used for a bunch of things. I, I, I was trying to place the building in East Cleveland and I, I just couldn't come up with it. I, I don't recognize it from the address. I'd have to drive by it to see it. Um, putting it in, I, I, I putting it in East Cleveland's interesting. They need the economic development, but it's also a bit of a jog from from downtown and from where the courts are. Um, so it would it, it, you'd have to look at the logistics and the transportation issues that would come with that. We'll have to see where it goes. I know that the original plan was the juvenile court complex working with St. Vincent's. But as you say, Layla, it might be too just too much money. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more quick one. What are the plans for the research center that Sherwin-Williams will build in Brecksville, a side project to the signature skyscraper it plans to build downtown? Laura Johnson, it's going to be a campus. Yeah, it's, it's part of a bigger campus, too, called Valor Acres, which was the old VA hospital in Brecksville right off Miller Road. And it's going to be set back with trees. It's not going to be nearly as flashy uh, as the downtown center, but it's going to be the first time that about 900 employees of the research and development team are going to be able to work all together. And they're planning this big building, a 600,000 square foot facility with fingers, like, like fingers on a hand. So there's like one entrance and then kind of hallways that go off the back. And one idea is that there's going to be a lot of natural light, which will give these scientists um, able to look at color a lot better, which is really interesting. And and they're calling this large corridor the color way, and the, the work is going to be done in collaboratories. But uh, also have a cafeteria, fitness center, spaces outside for employees. And the idea is they, they want to make this a nice place to go, you know, if people have to drive all the way to Brexville. <laughs> Are they going to change the logo from the one that covers the world in goo to, to something <laughs> more attractive? I have not seen anything on that, but that is a good question. I'm going to guess no, because it's been there for so long. But yeah, but it really no is idea. not a great message. Let's cover the world in thick goo. I'm not sure that works as we battle climate change and things. <laughs> this, this would be the moment to come up with a new one. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it. We got to get to work. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. And thank you to everybody who responded to my question on my text account yesterday about go rounds that would happen to Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. We will have a follow today. Apparently, way more common. A lot of you have experienced it. <laughs> <laughs>